This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. This is David Rutledge. Great to be with you once again for a conversation this week about hope, which uh, when you look around at the moment is something that seems like it's in short supply in many parts of the world. There's a lot of bad stuff happening out there, plenty of evidence to suggest that hope could be something of a luxury, maybe a a naive indulgence that's easy enough to afford if you happen to be a privileged middle-class person living in a country like Australia. But as we're about to hear, any of us can have our capacity for hope tested, no matter where we are or what conditions we're living under. Hope is one of those words that can recall a religious set of themes and associations, especially Christian themes and associations. And my guest this week has a very interesting philosophical perspective on the ways in which hope can actually connect the religious and the secular via the political. His name is David Neuheiser. He's a senior research fellow in the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. He has a really good book that's just come out in paperback titled Hope in a Secular Age. And his interest is not purely philosophical. David's got some skin in the game as the result of a serious accident last year. More on that coming up. My own thinking about hope is motivated by personal background. In my own life, I experience hope as something that's quite important, but that's something that I find difficult because uh, disappointment is real. And like everyone, I've experienced heartbreak. And in those moments, I found hope to be challenging. And so as I've tried to work out for my own purposes, what it means to hope, I found both philosophical resources to be useful, but I've sort of noticed, as you suggest, that there's this religious background that sort of comes along with the language of hope, that in European languages, it's sort of hard not to hear echoes of Jewish and Christian traditions. So the first usage of hope that's recorded in English is actually from around 1000 in the common era, from a commentary on the book of Isaiah from the Hebrew scripture. And throughout what Christians call the Old Testament, there's this hope for messianic redemption, the idea that there will be some sort of transformation whereby the world will be renewed in some profound sense. Christians with the the sort of New Testament scriptures, they came to interpret the person of Jesus Christ through the lens of the Hebrew scriptures. And so they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of these messianic promises. But there's this interesting structure to Christian hope, which is that even though Christians believed that the Messiah had come, they also were hoping for the Messiah to come again. There's a sense in which Christian hope remains incomplete. That hope for messianic redemption is something that Christians are still waiting for. So throughout Christian history in the Middle Ages, hope was a central theme. It was often interpreted as one of the theological virtues but in, in the sort of post-Reformation period through the early modern period and then to the present day, hope tended to sort of take a back seat to especially faith. It was seen as suspicious. A lot of modern philosophers thought that hope was unreliable. There was a longstanding philosophical critique of hope that saw it as a sort of emotion that sort of undermined rational deliberation. 
And in line with this, some, some Christians tended to see hope as following after faith, which they tended to construe narrowly in terms of belief. But in the 20th century, there was sort of a resurgence of reflection on hope as a number of 20th century theologians actually drawing on the centrality of hope in Marxian political thought. They sort of restored hope to the center of Christian thought. So people like Jürgen Moltmann and Dorothy Zola and others thought that hope was uh, central to a newly political conception of what Christianity ought to be in their understanding. All of that's to say that Christianity is enormously diverse. There's, there are many forms of Christianity both throughout time and in different places. But this theme of hope is, is deeply woven within it. And it, it colors, I think, the way that people tend to hear the language of hope today, whether or not they're religious at all. Right. And of course, your book is titled Hope in a Secular Age. And in that book, you're arguing that hope isn't just a precondition of Christian thought and practice. It's also indispensable to secular politics. And what I find really interesting here is that you're not just saying, okay, let's see if we can take this quaint old idea from Christianity and sort of blow the dust off it and, and retool it for secular modernity. You're actually arguing for a strong continuity between the Christian past and the secular modern present. So what does it mean to talk about hope in modern secular politics? And how does that continuity with Christianity present itself? Well, one of the things that first got me thinking about hope was actually its emergence in contemporary political thought. I began work on this book, I guess, in its early form around the time of Barack Obama's first presidential campaign. And so I was living in Chicago uh, during Obama's first presidential campaign. And there was this sort of electric charge to his use of hope as a theme. But as people commented at the time, there was also something that some people found suspicious. Sarah Palin famously referred to it as this hopey changey thing to sort of diminish it. But also from the from the left, some thinkers criticized it as diminishing the depth of the problems that America faced, especially in terms of systemic racism and the problematic nature of America's involvement in violence in various parts of the world. So one of the things that I wanted to do was to think through what hope was doing in these political contexts and to think through how hope might actually play a positive role. So in order to unpick this relationship, I felt like I needed to go back in the way that I've just described and try to understand this theological background, understand where it came from. But what I found once I thought about sort of between, I guess, the, the religious and political conceptions of hope is that there's a shared experience that people who are religious and people who aren't have, which is that disappointment is real, whether you're religious or not. People have things that they're invested in, things that they desire things that they want to happen. And sometimes those desires are disappointed. When that happens, when that disappointment confronts us, we're faced with a challenge. Do we hang on to the desire or do we let it go? And that's the moment I came to think that hope becomes real. That's when the question of hope confronts us. So I came to understand hope as the persistence of this, of this desire in the face of disappointment. So in my understanding, whether it's religious or political or personal, whether it's a, a love that one has for another person or whether it's a, a political cause or whether it's a religious commitment, 
I think each of these commitments requires this sort of persistence in the face of the possibility of disappointment, because vulnerability is always a present possibility. That's what human life is like. And for that reason, whatever commitment we have, we need hope in order to press forward without pretending that things are more certain than they are. But how do you figure that relationship between hope and disappointment? Because uh, you mentioned the campaign of um, Barack Obama in 2008. And of course, as you say, hope was pretty much the slogan of, the, of that campaign. And when he, he won the presidency, you know, there was this giddy moment where a lot of Americans thought that the fulfillment of hope for racial justice in the US had finally arrived, uh, as well as for progressive politics more generally. But then, you know, you look at where we are now, <laughs> you look at that famous campaign poster from 2008 with hope written across the bottom of it. It's it's hard, I think, not to feel a sense of tragic irony and perhaps a sense that hope is too vulnerable, too, too fragile for politics, a, a kind of false comfort. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think that's the sort of critique of hope that any hope that's worth having has to incorporate. And I think there's certainly moments when politicians like Obama, but others as well, They'll draw on hope for its sort of emotional energy, that electricity that I mentioned. And it's good at getting a crowd energized, at mobilizing groups of people. But I think that that emotional charge isn't robust enough to do the work that we need hope to do. So some philosophers will argue that hope is like a, an emotion, like a wish, Others will, will associate hope with the belief that things will work out well, like a sort of optimism. But I think both of those conceptions of hope are fragile. And that's why I associate hope more strongly with uh, an act of will. I understand it as a discipline of persistence. So uh, my understanding hope is actually consistent with a really profound pessimism. Hope doesn't depend on the view that what it hopes for is likely to occur. I actually think, unlike most philosophers, that hope is consistent with the view that what it hopes for is impossible in principle. I think for that reason, hope is more robust than the sort of empty gesture that some politicians will make. And that's the reason why I think, although there's a sort of shallowness to some of the gestures that Obama made in his presidential campaign, in his best moments, he articulated something like the pessimistic hope that I'm describing. He, I think in the quieter moments of some of his best speeches, he talks about the persistence of racial injustice throughout American history. And he acknowledges that those issues aren't going to be solved in a moment. Some people acted as if his candidacy or his presidency might resolve the history of slavery and its pernicious effects on American culture. But Obama knew otherwise. And I think in that sense, he, at least at its be his best, not always, he models a hope that incorporates a profound pessimism that's not optimistic at all, in fact. I like what you're saying there about that compatibility between hope and pessimism. I mean, it's, it's very counterintuitive, but it it makes me think of Christian tradition, if we step out of the secular for a minute, and look at the way in which, for the past 2,000 years, Christian hope has existed in a constant state of suspension. You know, it, it sort of points to this horizon that's never quite reached. And 
you can question the usefulness of that within a, a political context. But it points to interesting things about messianic expectation, which which you mentioned earlier. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Is there something in messianic expectation that that is useful in the in the secular domain? I think there certainly is, and one of the main sources of my own understanding of hope is the work of Jacques Derrida, who was a philosopher who died in uh, around the turn of the millennium, who understood himself as a certain sort of atheist. He was raised in a Jewish home, and he was preoccupied throughout his life by Christian theological traditions. And one of the central themes in his work that he kept returning to was the messianic motif in Jewish and Christian thought. One of the things that Derrida found in this messianic tradition was the idea of a hope that would orient and energize political life without causing it to freeze into a sort of complacency that would limit the horizons of political imagination. So for instance, he thinks about the hope for democracy as messianic in this sense. For Derrida, the important thing about reflection on democracy is that one should always push towards a greater realization of democracy. One should never think that democracy had been realized in full. For him, democracy is an ideal that one shouldn't even think one could imagine what the fullest realization of democracy would look like. One should always try to imagine a more democratic society in his understanding. One should be open to that sort of excess of a greater democratic imagination. But for him, this isn't a cause for despair. The fact that democracy is somehow elusive in his mind ought to inspire a sort of messianic hope, this uh, hope that is always sort of stretching beyond itself. And when Derrida describes this hope and when he's reflecting on the messianic, he thinks between biblical traditions. So he draws on Jewish and Christian scriptures when they reflect on the messianic, but also on Marxian tradition. So he he sees this messianic tradition as reflected in Marx. And so in this sense, I think he, he exemplifies the thing that I think is so useful about hope as a sort of point of contact between the secular and the religious. It's not owned by either side, but it's a way to think about how people who are religious and people who aren't can find a place to reflect together on a shared experience which they hold in common. You're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is David Neuheiser. He's the author of Hope in a Secular Age, which has just come out in paperback, and I have to say it's one of the best books I've read over the past couple of years. Publication details on the Philosopher's Zone website. Well, the other thing that we're talking about today is the notion of breaking or or rupture and and how a rupture can be traumatic, but also how when things fall apart and you have to put them back together again, this can give rise to certain opportunities. And we're going to talk about this in the social and, and political context, but you experienced a rupture in the fairly recent past that was both personal and literal in the form of a serious accident. Let's begin with that. Tell me what happened there. Almost exactly a year ago, I had a a serious bicycle accident in which I was cycling on a, a major road in central Melbourne where I live and a car made an illegal 
uh, turn across my path and I, I hit their passenger side at high speed. I didn't have time to brake. And at first I thought my injuries were just musculoskeletal. I was sort of banged up and had some bruised ribs. But then after about a week, I, I had a severe headache that came on. And essentially it hasn't stopped since then. I uh, developed a concussion, which has has since uh, developed into post-concussion syndrome. So I have um, since then been re- receiving uh, care for what's become uh, apparently a chronic condition. And it's interesting now that my, you know, my book is, has just come out in paperback. So I've, I've been revisiting it and reflecting on how it looks now, given that I, I wrote it before this experience happened. And I feel like I have sort of been living the thing that I described in the book, the sort of vulnerability is something that I now experience in my body in the first six months after my accident. I couldn't really do most of the things that I most love to do. I, I, because of the cognitive symptoms of my accident, I had difficulty reading. I had difficult brain fog. So reading prose was difficult. Holding ideas in my head was challenging. I had a, a persistent headache. So even a casual conversation with a friend was laborious. And uh, I discovered that having a constant headache is harder than it seems. And in that context, it really required all of my reserves of resilience to sort of press through and find the moments of joy and beauty in my life that I could. So I feel like I sort of had to live the persistence that I, I described in, in my book. And I, I sort of found that hope is even more important than I had realized. I also feel like my understanding of hope has a sort of more complicated texture than it did before, however, because in the book, I focus on hope as a personal practice. And I think there's something really important about that, this sort of capacity of will resilience. I think that is something people have the capacity to tap into. And I think in conversation with people like Derrida and Camus, I think it's an important point to make. But around the time of my accident, I was reading feminist theorists like Judith Butler, who emphasize our interdependence, who emphasize that our freedom is always dependent upon the work of others. No one is truly entirely autonomous. And I found that to be true. And so my, I found that my hope after my accident, even though it was in a sense a discipline of resilience that was my own. It was also sustained by the care that I received from other people, from friends in my life, from my partner, from colleagues, and from a healthcare system that before then I had taken for granted. So I found that this experience of of dependence sort of taught me just how important those structures of care are just to make hope possible. And of course, this all happened during the time of COVID when things were already very difficult. COVID, of course, representing another rupture in our, our personal and social and political lives. What does it mean to think of COVID in, in a spirit of hope? And how was this experience of yours affected by the pandemic? How did it, how did it leave you thinking about or understanding the pandemic? I was quite conscious over the course of my recovery, and I'm grateful that I've come a long way, but the fact that I have recovered as well as I have 
has to do with the fact that I have benefited from a great deal of support. I think that if this accident had happened elsewhere, I wouldn't have had the benefit of a healthcare system that has, that has supported my recovery. I have benefited from an employer that has given me the time that I needed to recover. And in many places, including uh, in Australia, other, other people with chronic conditions like mine might be told simply to pull themselves together. They'd be blamed for not being able to do more. And I knew in the abstract before my accident that this was unjust. But now I know in my body that this sort of blame, this failure to support people is obscene. And it's something that I think we're seeing play out now in relation to COVID. So I think that the trauma that we're living through is really complicated. But I think one of the things that I am attuned to because of my, my experience over the last year is the way in which people, I think early in the pandemic, many of us experienced COVID as something that we were doing together. I think at least in, Mel in Melbourne where I live, I and the people around me, the people in my neighborhood, we felt like we were engaged in a common project. We were working together to stop the spread. We were wearing masks in order to protect the vulnerable. And there was a real spirit of solidarity. I went back uh, over the last week and looked at some photos that I took from uh, the last couple of years and just to see the sort of posters and signs, street art that people put up reflected this community spirit that we were working together in a common project. But there was a shift that took place towards the end of last year. The federal government explicitly said that responsibility for the pandemic was now for individuals. So rather than coordinating collective action, something we were doing together, it was for, for individuals to manage the, the pandemic. And this is, a, this is the typical gesture that theorists like Judith Butler have, have analyzed that neoliberal governments make of making individuals responsible. The trouble is that with a pandemic like this, we've seen that we are deeply interconnected. My health depends in a very real way on the health of my neighbor, the person living next to me and, and other people in Melbourne, but also my brothers and sisters in Argentina and South Africa, Indonesia and elsewhere. And so there's a very real sense in which I can't bear the responsibility on my own. It's, it's an impossible weight. And I think for that reason, in response to that, the sort of responsabilization of the pandemic, a lot of individuals have, I think, sort of through exhaustion, sort of descended into a kind of fatalism. It, it all feels like too much. And so for very understandable reasons, I think people have sort of slipped back into a normal life. And I think the costs of that have been really significant. So one of the things that concerns me is, I think early on in the pandemic, despair was the danger. But now I think the danger that we face is probably more complacency, which is just as hopeless. So one of the things that when you ask, what does it mean to think about COVID in relation to hope? I think we can imagine a, uh, a world that's better than the normal that we knew before. I think that's what hope can give us. And in particular, I, I hope that we can recover that spirit of solidarity that we, that we had earlier on, because I think, uh, I think there's a real power in that. So COVID, I guess, in spite of the, the grief and the tragedy that it's caused, 
could be seen as one of those ruptures that afford an opportunity for thinking familiar structures and ways of being, doing things differently, doing things better. Do you think about your accident in the same way? So when my accident occurred, I was beginning work on my second book, which is on miracles and democratic imagination. And in a way, I feel like I've learned a lot being mostly unable to work for the last year because my accident was a trauma and it was it was a terrible thing. It wasn't good. But as a rupture in my life, I was able to take some good things from it. I think along the lines that you're suggesting, by forcing me to stop all of a sudden, I learned a different relationship to my work. One of the things that characterized my life before my accident was that partly because like many academics until just a few months ago, I had spent the last 15 years of my life precariously employed in a series of short-term contracts. I had felt like in every waking moment, I had to, I had to work. I had to squeeze as much productivity as I could out of my brain. And so I was at a sort of constant risk of burnout for that reason. And I think in a way, the fact that my accident developed in this way and sort of forced me to stop was in part my body rebelling against this constant pressure that I was being placed under. And one of the things that I want to take away now that I'm recovering and I'm able to work again, one of the things that I want to take away is a healthier relationship to my work. Uh, I want to be a bit more human. I want to have a a healthier relationship to my, uh, my partner, the people in my life, my community. And What I've learned in my own life is something that I hope the world can take away from the experience of COVID. As with my accident, COVID is a terrible thing. And I think it's important just to take a step back because I think we are in a much better place now than we were in two years ago or one year ago. So the vaccines that we have now are enormously protective and that's a great thing. So fewer people are at risk. The risk to vaccinated people is a lot less. But it is the case that even in Australia, many people are dying even now. And many, many people are dying in other parts of the world. And both in wealthy countries and globally, the burdens of the pandemic, both in terms of uh, the death rate, but also in terms of the other harms that COVID brings with it, are unequally distributed. So people who were already disadvantaged are being further harmed by COVID. And we shouldn't let the benefits that we've won uh, over the last couple of years cause us to turn away from the grief that we ought to feel at the losses that that are ongoing. So I think that in relation to the rupture that have occurred, I think it's important to take stock to grieve. And I think that's one of the things that hope can allow us to do, to actually acknowledge the grief that we ought to feel in relation to the losses that have occurred. But also, as you suggest, I think to imagine a better world rather than returning to the world that we knew before, rather than sort of going back to a normal in which an unhealthy relationship to work was common, rather than going back to a world that was profoundly unequal, in which precarious patterns of work were widespread, uh, both on a global level, but also in wealthy countries like Australia. I think the fact that things could be so suddenly transformed is a chance for us to imagine how things might be better, because we can do better. 
I think things don't have to be as they were. David Neuheiser, Senior Research Fellow in the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. His book is Hope in a Secular Age, and you can find publication details on our website. That's The Philosopher's Zone. You can find us via the Radio National website or the good old ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge. You'll find me lurking on Twitter at David P Zone. And of course, you'll also find me right here on the program next week. See you then. Music